Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey guys, welcome back to the Short Term Show. Today we have Dave Foster, the wizard of all things 1031 Exchange. He is going to educate us on the ins and outs of the 1031 Exchange for real estate investors. How's it going, Dave? Hey, it's going awesome, Avery. Hello, Short Term Nation. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about what you do before you launch into your presentation and how you help real estate investors. I am a certified, should be certified anyways, tax avoidance junkie. I hate paying taxes. And somewhere along the line, 20, 25 years ago, I discovered a way to avoid paying tax on the gain from real estate profits. So what I do is a process called a 1031 exchange for real estate investors that lets us avoid tax on the profits. So I'm everybody's friend except the IRS. <laughs> you have been my friend actually in the very recent past. We just completed a 1031 exchange with you and it has been awesome so far. Exchanged a smaller, two smaller units into two much larger units that resulted in much higher cash flow and we did not have to pay capital gains taxes. So that's awesome on a number of levels. Yeah, it's kind of that one time when going to the mailbox and having it empty with no tax bill is actually the best part of your day. <laughs> best part of your year, maybe. <laughs> exactly. All right. So uh, I, the floor is yours for you to educate us whenever you are ready. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, yeah, let's do it. And we'll kind of dive into this thing. That was the teaser. This is all about IRS sanctioned tax avoidance. And the specific part that I deal with and what we did with you, Avery, was on your investment properties, um, which uses the 1031 exchange. But before we get too far into that, I've got a bonus gift for you today, which makes me feel like the Ronco guy. But wait, there's more. It actually starts out with the fact that there's two parts of the federal tax code that talk about taxing and real estate. The first one is section 121, which deals with your primary residence. And actually there's a lot of people that don't know this. And this by itself is so powerful for you just as an individual. Because with section 121, what happens is that anytime you have lived in a property you own for two out of the five years prior to selling it, you can take the first $250,000 of profit. And if you're married, you get to double that to $500,000 of profit tax free. So all you've got to do to get a bunch of tax free money is go buy a house and live in it. And two years later, $250,000 or $500,000 is going to be tax-free. Now, here's a question for Avery the Guru. Avery, how many times can you do that throughout your life? I Any think guesses? that's a question for you. Uh, well, up until the late 80s, you could do that once in your lifetime. And so really, most everybody still has a tendency to think that I've got to save up for that moment. 
but in actuality, you can do this once every two years. I mean, so think about the power of this thing. If all I do is I go and I live in a property for two years, I move and I sell it, I get to take money tax-free and I can do that once every two years. Now, what the National Association of Realtors tells us is that people live in their houses about an average of five to eight years. So somewhere between eight and 10 times, you've got an opportunity to turn your primary residence into tax-free dollars. Um, I've used that myself a number of times. We used it to move from Colorado to Connecticut to Florida and ended up buying a sailboat with tax-free real estate dollars that we raised our four boys on. That's how powerful this can be. But there is a tie-in with the other part of the tax code. So I just wanted to tease you with that <laughs> so that you can know that that's out there and what a powerful thing that is. You can take that money and do whatever you want. But Section 1031 deals with the rest of real estate. In, in a as broad categories would go. You've got your primary residence. Section 1031 deals with everything else. Real estate that you hold for business. Now, remember the keys of 121 was it's your primary residence. It's tax-free. It's every two years. With 1031, you're selling business, real estate. You're indefinitely deferring the payment of the tax that would normally be due on the sale. So that's a little bit different. It's not tax-free, but give Dave a little credit and some time because I use that word indefinitely on purpose. You're going to indefinitely defer payment of the tax that would normally be due on the sale. So two sections of the code, primary residence, investment property, tax-free, tax-deferred. There is a play, very sweet spot where those two come together. You with me so far? I am with you so far. All right. So here's where the rubber hits the road. The 1031 exchange, as you can imagine, has got all kinds of hoops and things you got to jump through. So we're going to spend a little bit of time now talking about the six basic requirements. And all six of these have to be met in order for your 1031 exchange to fly. If you're selling a primary residence, the only qualification, did you own it? Did you live in it for two out of the five years prior to sale? With the 1031, there's a requirement for the type of property. There's a couple timing requirements. There's a requirement to use somebody like me to call the qualified intermediary that does the exchanges. There's some requirements for how title must be held. And then of course there's the requirements on, well, how much do I have to spend? What do I have to buy? And all six of these have to be met. So we're just going to kind of go through them and, you know, feel free to stop me at any time, Avery, and ask questions as we blaze through this. So the first requirement is that it, the property must be held for investment. It is investment property. And what that means is any type of property that is held for trade, which means using in your trade, um, I am a shoemaker and I have a factory. That factory is real estate that's used in my trade. We don't mean trade like trading properties because that kind of gets into the area 
of the fix and flipper. And we'll talk more about that several times. But fix and flippers cannot do 1031 exchanges. But if I'm holding property for use in my trade, I'm a restauranteer and I have a restaurant building, then that would qualify. Property that I hold for business, um, you've got a ton of folks around you in the short-term nation where I buy property to use to generate income. Short-term rentals are my business. I rent them out. So I'm holding property to use as a form of business income generator. <laughs> holding property for investment is a little bit different than what you would think. Um, people think about buying property. You, well, actually, what's the old adage? You make money in real estate when you buy. So everybody's looking for the best deal to buy. And the investor doesn't necessarily think that way. The person that's holding property for investment may very well pay today what a property's worth, but they're holding it for investment because later it's going to appreciate and increase in value. So this is kind of a key distinction. You're not buying property because it's undervalued and you can sell it tomorrow. That's a person that's not using it as an investment. They're a dealer or a fixer flipper. The investor buys property regardless of its value, but they buy it because it's going to appreciate over time. So there is a longer time horizon with people who can use 1031 exchanges. And in fact, all the statute says is that it must be your intent to hold the property for productive use. And we're going to talk about intent a little bit more as we go along as well. But just know that there's a difference between people who primarily buy it to resell it. They cannot do 1031 exchanges. People who primarily buy it to hold it and use it. Those people can do it. And as opposed to the primary residence, where all you had to do was live in it for two out of the previous five years, so you could have lived in it for a couple of years and then moved out for a couple of years and still qualified. To qualify for a 1031 exchange, it is how the current use of the property is when you sell it. That's the key component. If you're using it for one of those three components, then you can do the 1031 exchange. So any property held for income or used to produce income can be exchanged for any other type of investment or income producing property. Um, I stopped my wife on this once, Avery, when she got her realtor's license. Uh, I asked her the question, in your texts for your studying, what did they tell you were the four types of real estate? Do you know? I think you've stumped me too. Oh my goodness. Yeah, because <laughs> there's so much that goes on in those hours, right? Your brain fogs over. So, <laughs> Yeah, they are industrial, commercial, residential, and land. Four very, very broad types. But the 1031 exchange can be used to sell single-family rental, residential, and buy industrial. You can sell single-family, buy multifamily. You can sell commercial and buy a short-term rental. You can sell land and buy a duplex. As long as it's being used 
and for trade, business, or investment, then it qualifies and it's all considered like kind. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And that is one of my questions is what constitutes like kind? Yeah. Uh, well, interestingly enough, the state is actually who defines what real estate is. So you can get some really funky things. For instance, in Florida and actually South of North Carolina as well, there are these places where you pull boats up to a dock and you tie your boat off. They're called boat slips, right? In Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, if those have been deeded to the owner, then those states call those boat slips real estate. I don't know how in the world you can have real estate that's nothing but a hole in the water, but that is real estate. And because it's considered to be real estate by the state, like kind means that you could sell that boat slip and go purchase a cabin in the Smoky Mountains for investment. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's nuts. <laughs> So it's very loosely interpreted, and that gives you all kinds of opportunities to change locations and to change sectors of real estate, which is really why we've seen a huge move, haven't we, we in the end of the short-term markets, because people were seeing, they were starting to get scared of commercial and scared of long-term rentals because of all of the COVID restrictions on evictions and moratoriums on rent. That's an iffy kind of market, but you can avoid a whole bunch of those and start to satisfy a nation's hunger for vacations close to home by moving from regular rentals into short-term rentals or retail commercial property, which everybody's just shivering in fear of. And again, into short-term rentals where there's incredible demand. So like kind can really be used to your advantage. We are talking only about real estate and the definition of real estate, which of course is defined by the states. We've got a little bit ahead of ourselves here. When we talk about holding period, remember I said it was intent. There is no statutory holding period, but there's a feeling that in general, anything more than 12 months feels good as a whole, not because it's in the statute, but for a couple of the reasons. Firstly, because anytime you hold property over a year, it's going to be reported on two consecutive tax returns. Now, that means that when the only way we communicate with the IRS is through our tax returns. So that means you have actually held that property for two tax years. Secondly, long-term 12 months would always turn a gain from a short-term gain into a long-term gain. So while there's no magic with it or statutory requirement, crossing that 12-month boundary just makes it feel more long-term. And that's what the IRS wants to see if they ever ask you, is that you can demonstrate that your intent was to hold for productive use. But there can always be special circumstances where maybe a hold of less than 12 months might be appropriate. 
my favorite client of 2020. And Avery, you may have actually sent this person to me. Uh, they're from up in your neck of the woods. Sold a property that they had in Tennessee that they had owned for one month. Now, does that sound like someone who was intending to hold it, Avery? No. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so either. And I said, yeah, right. I don't think this is going to work for you. And he said, well, but Dave, I had to agree in my contract to honor the long-term lease of the tenant that was in that house. And of course, my response then was, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to honor that. Now you're selling it. So obviously you just changed that, didn't you? He said, no, Dave, I really was going to hold on to it. I said, then why are you selling it? And you'll appreciate this, Avery. He said, well, I think it was the bear. I said, what? He said, yeah, a bear took up residence at the trash can. And the tenant got scared. She couldn't take the trash out. She was scared to leave the house. So she vacated the lease. He said, and I'm not going to mess with a house that's got a bear in it. So I'm going to sell it. It's not in it. It's around it. <laughs> well, it could have been. Actually, what was funny is he sent me a ring camera shot. And we actually saw the bear at the front door. Wow. <laughs> I said, you know, I can't tell you for sure, but I kind of doubt the IRS is ever going to want to argue with a bear. You're probably right about that. Yeah. So was his intent to sell? No, it wasn't. But a bear got in the way. So the 1031 was absolutely appropriate for him. But what it all comes down to is what your intent was and how you're going to demonstrate it. Now, like kind does have a restriction in that it's got to be real estate, U.S. for U.S. And by the way, that does include the areas of the territories of Guam and the U.S. for Giants. And we actually do quite a few uh, down into the USVIs because it's such a nice exotic uh, vacation destination and yet still qualifies for 1031 treatment. But it's U.S. property for U.S. property there to those territories. And by the way, Puerto Rico does not count. Oh, that's the one I was going to ask about. I, I thought you were. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you exactly why, but it is something in how the original treaties were set up. Hmm. So it's got to be a mind-numbing legislative thing. Uh, but Puerto Rico does not count. Well, you do have my wheels turning with the U.S. Virgin Islands, though. Oh, sister, I'll go help you do due diligence anytime you want. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll meet you down there. <laughs> so, yeah, foreign property for foreign property. So I could sell in Ireland and buy in the Dominican Republic if I'm a U.S. citizen using the tether to an exchange. But I could not sell in Ohio and buy in the Bahamas using the 1031. U.S. for U.S., foreign for foreign. Now, I, I use this screen for a couple of reasons. First of all, rental property is always an investment. Bear land is always an investment. The distinction, though, or the common ground that they share is that rental property always makes, it generally produces income. Bear land rarely produces income. So that there is no statutory requirement that the income is actually produced, only that your intent and your actions are to hold the property for productive use. 
So, you know, someone called and said, well, Dave, it's been a year since I've generated any income because of COVID. Well, what happened the year before that? Well, I tried to rent it and I rented it the year before, but I don't have any income. So can I still do it? Absolutely, because your actions and your intent are to hold that property for investment use. I got a piece of raw land that I've just held for years. I'm doing anything with it. Why have you owned it? Well, because it's going up in value. Appreciation. So it's not the income generation. It's my intent and why I'm holding it. So you ready for a test? I am. Here we go. Bill and Jane. And this is actually going to apply really well to your folks. They've got a duplex. It's a full-time rental. It's someplace in New Jersey. Know why I picked New Jersey? Why? Because they have garages. And inside the garages are these things called shovels. <laughs> and they use them on this stuff called snow, which you actually still know about. <laughs> but the only shovel I have is a sand shovel. And it's for my nieces and nephews. So down here in Florida. So Bill and Jane have a duplex. They want to sell it. And they're going to go buy a vacation rental. They're going to rent it out some. They're going to use it for themselves some. Can they do that? What's Avery say? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. There is no restriction on some personal use. Now, if you're using it 52 weeks a year for yourself, what is that property? It's not a rental. It's your primary residence. And that would not be an appropriate 1031. But to buy it to generate some income and have a great family rental for yourself to use some? Absolutely. And by the way, here's a teaser. This is going to fall into the conversion into your primary residence. I'm going to show you how to make that work a little bit later. But that's this is the step one. Go find a great vacation rental you like. Use a 1031 exchange to buy it. You'll indefinitely defer all of the tax on the sale of that New Jersey property to go down and buy your vacation rental. And voila, now you got a great place, step one, to use for yourself and generate some income. Okay, let's blaze on through the second requirement, which is the 45-day identification period. You have 45 days to identify your potential replacement properties. Now that's calendar days. So day one is the day of closing. And by 45 days later at midnight, you have to have a list in place that identifies your potential replacement properties. After day 45, that list can't change. It is set in stone. Now, during the 45 day period, you can either go ahead and complete your purchase, take title to your properties, that's actually a great way to mitigate risk. As a matter of fact, you can go into contract for your new property before your old property sells. We just have to close the sale before you can close the purchase. But a lot of our clients will do that. They'll go into contract before they sell. And then a week after they close their sale, they'll actually purchase and take ownership of their replacement properties and their 1031 is done. But your other option is that by the end of day 45, you at least provide a written list of replacement property or properties. 
It's got to be in writing. And here's where we get into the deep weeds. It's got to be a specific identification also, which means you can't just name a unit in this building. It's got to be a specific unit. And here we go. As long as you name three, and by the way, Avery, there's going to be another test, so get ready. So if you name three or fewer properties on your list, it doesn't matter how much they're worth. So you could sell a $100,000 property and you could put $3 million properties on your list. That's perfectly fine. You can name more than three properties on your list. But if you do that, then their value in total can't be more than 200% of the value of what you sold. So again, if I sold a $100,000 property and I wanted to name four $50,000 condos, I don't know if that's a reality anymore, but the example will work. I could do that. Why? Well, because I named four properties, but 50 times four is $200,000. So I named $200,000 of replacement property. My sale was $100,000 and 200% of that is $200,000. So although I named more than three properties, I did not break 200% of the value of what I sold. So I can still do that. But I could not name three $50,000 condos and one $75,000 condo because then the total value of my list is $225,000. And $225,000 is more than 200% of the value of what I sold. So that would be an inappropriate list. Unless, the IRS never makes this easy. Unless I actually purchased 95% of the value of the list. So if my list was 225,000, but I purchased, I don't know what that would be, 217,000 or something like that, of the actual value of the list, it would still be allowable, at least 95%. But the reality is how many of those properties would I have to purchase? All four of them. So three property rule, no restrictions. Four properties can't be more than 200% of what you sold unless you buy 95% of the list where in reality, every property on your list. Okay, so if you name three on your list, they are not subject to that 200% rule? Correct. Okay, and why is that? That's a great question. I don't have a clue. All right. That's not quite an answer. <laughs> great, great. You answer. know, yeah, you kind of, you, you got to go back to, to when, there, what happened in the, the uh, it actually took like 20 years for the court case of Starker versus the commissioner to go all the way through the highest appeals courts before the Supreme Court because he sued the IRS. And first he won and they appealed and then they won and he appealed. And then finally at the end, he won. And what Starker did was he sold a, a huge piece of timberland 
and he left the money with the buyer. It was a big paper company. And he said, you hold on to the money. And over the course of the next couple of years, I'll identify properties and you buy them for me. And what he said was that he had completed an appropriate 1031 exchange. And the IRS said, no, you did not. And they hated it. Well, ultimately, though, he won. So most of what we see in the law now is a response to what ticked them off about him. So he went out just shopping on his own. The IRS kind of likes to be in control of information. And so that's the only thing I can think of for why this part of the rule. But this is the most complicated part of the rule. And interestingly, it's the one where most of the exchanges will fall apart because of how tight the time frame is to find properties in that 45-day period. Great information. So here's the here's the other shoe, right, that's falling. No exceptions, no extensions. Now, notice I said individual, because yes, everybody got an extension for COVID that expired last July. Thanks, federal government. <laughs> for the California wildfires, there's been some exceptions. We get them down here once in a while for hurricanes, for certain areas. And actually, what's crazy, Texas and Oklahoma got extensions for this last snowfall. <laughs> Come on. I swear, I've been in Dallas when it was just a rainstorm and they forget how to drive. So that probably was appropriate. So while exceptions and extensions are nice things to hope for, they're not something you ever want to count on. So that 45 days is serious. All right, here we go, Avery. The test, Bill and Jane, sell a rental for 100000 They want to identify two or three for $10 million. Is that okay? Yes. Absolutely. Because they kept it under under four, three or fewer. So the value doesn't matter. Question number two, Bill and Jane sell a property for 100 He wants to identify four replacements for 75 each. Is that okay? No. Ah, tricked you. Uh, oh, wait. He could if he's going to purchase, what is it, 95% of? That's exactly correct. Okay. You're I'll absolutely right. He broke the four property rule. So that by itself means he can't do it. But if he actually bought all four, he closed on 95%. That's kind of stressful. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we live every bit of the stress of our clients. Mm-hmm. We do. So now you understand where the gray hair came from. <laughs> now, running at the exact same time as the 45 days, meaning it starts with day one of the closing, you have 180 days to complete your purchases. The property has to be a property that's on your 45 day list or more than one. It doesn't matter how many properties you purchase but they do have to be on your 45-day list. So 180 days doesn't seem quite so bad. It's the 45 that are really going to trip you up when you're out for replacement properties. Again, no individual exceptions and no individual extensions. Here's one little caveat. If you close on your sale and start your 1031 really late in the year, like in November or December, then that means that your exchange technically won't be over until 
May or June. So what the IRS said, because they don't want there to be any penalty for starting an exchange and not completing it, they said that the actual date for your exchange is 180 or the date of your next tax period filing. Because if you get down to April, like you closed in December and you get down to April, you have to file a tax return. If you're not going to complete your 1031 exchange, then you're going to report it on your tax return as if it never happened. Or it's going to be done and you have to report it on that tax return with the appropriate forms. So that's why it's got to be done either at the earlier of either 180 days or when your next tax return is due. So it's just a little something you want to watch out for. The answer is really easy and it says it there. If you're coming up on that, just follow that extension and you'll be fine. So there are these critters called the qualified intermediaries and they are required by the IRS to do 1031 exchanges on behalf of clients. I have a job only because the IRS says I exist. The IRS, I suppose, could say that I don't exist tomorrow and I'll be out of a job waiting tables or something. But since the IRS moves very slowly, I feel pretty good about this. So they're required and they'd have to be an unrelated third party. So in your regular transaction, Avery, you've got all of your team, right? You've got your preferred lenders, title companies, accountants, attorneys, inspectors. All of those people have a role within the transaction. The QI doesn't replace any of them. The QI adds another dimension of the performance of the 1031 in conjunction with all of those other trades and peoples. I just said peoples. I love that. The key to this whole thing is that the QI has to be involved prior to the closing of the sale of the property. I still get calls every week, and I know you have too because you referred a couple to me, from people who said, hey, I sold my property last month. I want to see about doing a 1031 exchange. And I got to weep with them and say, not going to happen because the QI has to be in place. Because if the QI is not in place at the closing of the sale, then it's not going to be documented on the settlement statement and you're going to have received the funds. Even if you leave the money at the title company, you still have what is called constructive receipt because you're in control of the money. And that's what the IRS doesn't allow. So that's the QI has a lot of things that they have to do inside the 1031, but just know that they're going to have to be a component of your sale if you want there to be a 1031 exchange. Makes sense? Makes sense. So we have to call somebody like you and get you involved before we close on the sale of the property that we are going to sell in order to buy more properties. That's exactly correct. Gotcha. Now, title requirements are something I actually like to use the word taxpayer. And the reason for that is that the whoever the taxpayer is for the old property is who the taxpayer needs to be for the new property. 
And what I mean by that is, I mean, the IRS, remember, we only communicate with our tax returns. So the taxpayer for a property is really the tax return that reports the property. So Avery, if you own a piece of property and it's in your name and you report that property on your tax return, you are the taxpayer. Now, interestingly enough, you and Luke may file, probably do file a joint tax return. Correct. What that means that whether or not Luke is on the deed, he's still one of the taxpayers because the property is reported on your joint tax return. So even though the property may have been deeded in your name only, you could sell it and start the exchange and buy as you and Luke as joint tenants. Or Luke could take title to the property in his own name. Why is that? Because it never changes the taxpayer. Because whether the property is in your name or your and Luke's name together or Luke's name by himself, the taxpayer is still your joint tax return. So think about what kind of opportunities that gives you in terms of lending, letting one or the other of you take out mortgages in your own name, or for those people that got married a little bit later when each person had a house and they forget to deed it over to both, no problem because it's the tax return that reports it. Now, when people put property as they will, a lot of times into LLCs, we've got to follow the same trail. Because there are LLCs that are considered to be disregarded, these LLCs only have one member, the owner, or the owner, husband, and wife, or whatever, and they choose to be taxed as a sole proprietor. So they don't file its own tax return. And in that case, all of the activity of the property that's owned by that LLC is reported on the Schedule E of the individual who owns the LLC or the couple that own the LLC. So who's the real taxpayer? So if Avery and Luke own an LLC called ABC LLC, and that LLC doesn't file its own tax return, then who is the actual taxpayer for a property owned by ABC LLC? It's actually Avery and Luke. So you could sell as the LLC and buy as Avery and Luke because you're not changing the taxpayer. Clear as mud? Yes, and that's a question that a lot of clients ask is that it has to be the way the title is held on the previous property on the sale of the property has to be the same as the new one but that that actually does shed a lot of light on the details of that so thank you yeah in general the deeds will match usually but they don't always have to gotcha yeah that's some of the magic (laughs) hey the last and most important in everybody's hearts What do I have to do to reinvest? How much do I have to reinvest? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding and it's nobody's fault, but the IRS. Actually, that's kind of a good mantra in life. If there's a problem, 
blame it on the government because it's generally their fault. And with that, I guarantee myself an audit this year. <laughs> all right. If you want to defer all tax, now remember, I said if you want to defer all tax, then you got to do two things. First, you must reinvest all of the cash proceeds. Secondly, you must purchase property or properties that are least equal or greater value than what was sold. Now, I said if you want to defer all tax because you could purchase less than you sold and pay tax on the difference. That's fine. You can take some cash out. You'll pay tax on that, but you'll shelter the rest of the tax that would have been due. You can do a partial exchange. But if you want to defer all tax, use all the cash that's generated and purchase at least as much as you sell. Here's a quick and easy way to get real close to what your reinvestment target is. Take the amount of cash that goes into your exchange account. Add to that how much mortgage was paid off. That's your reinvestment target. Now, the question always gets asked, well, do I have to take out my mortgage? I have to have the same amount of mortgage. No, you don't. You have to purchase at least as much as your net sale, and you have to use all of the cash. The way you figure out what you need to purchase is to find what your reinvestment goal is, which is the cash plus the mortgage payoff. But you can always use some or all of your own money instead of a new mortgage. If you're buying a much more expensive property and you, you have to add some cash to the mortgage, you could bring in your own funds. If you're if you're buying a property that doesn't have much didn't, and you didn't have much mortgage and you simply want to take some money out of savings to complete your purchase and not take out a new mortgage, that's fine. As long as you purchase at least as much as you sell and you use all the cash proceeds. Now, here's more way a realtor would think about it. To figure out what you've got to reinvest, find the net sales price of your old property. That's going to be the contract price minus closing costs and commissions. That's how much you have to buy. And then you pay off your mortgage and the net proceeds are how much you have to use. So the net sales price or cash plus debt relief, you're gonna arrive at the same number. Here, here's a real world example. I sold a property for 320. There were $20,000 in closing costs and commissions. So what's my net sale? $300,000. That's my reinvestment target. Now, on that $300,000, there was a $100,000 mortgage. So now I generate into my exchange account $200,000 of cash. What are my reinvestment requirements? That I purchase at least $300,000 using all $200,000 of cash. Now, this is where your strategy starts to come in because $200,000 is a pretty big down payment for a $300,000 property, isn't it? So maybe you want to use the 1031 exchange to buy something much larger 
to make that 200000 just a good down payment. Or maybe you want to buy two smaller properties because you can arrive at the same leverage that same way. Or maybe you would want to buy a $100,000 property for all cash and use the other $100,000 to go and purchase a much larger property for $300,000. In all of those scenarios, did you purchase at least as much as you sold? Yep. Did you use all of your cash to do it? Yep. How you do that in the middle is the art of developing your portfolio and your investing career. Make sense? Makes perfect sense. So here's the question I always get. But Dave, I put $20,000 down on that property. I want to get that back. That's my original capital. That's not taxed, is it? And my answer is absolutely, that's correct. Your original capital is not profit, so it would not be taxed if you don't do a 1031 exchange. When you do a 1031 exchange, the IRS chooses to define the money that you take out differently. And if you take money out of the 1031 exchange, the IRS is going to say you're taking profit first. Now, wait a minute. Dave, it's my original capital. I agree. But what you're calling your original capital, the IRS is calling profit because you're taking it out at the beginning of a 1031 exchange. So you say original capital, the IRS says profit. Who wins that argument? The ones with the nuclear weapons. <laughs> so that's why the reinvestment targets. Now, the quick answer to that scenario, do a full 1031 exchange and then refinance after the fact. Because when you refinance, you can pull cash out without paying tax and use that money for whatever you want. What's the time limit on that after you close the 1031 exchange before you can refinance? The, uh, the joke in the industry used to be long enough to use two pens. So there really isn't any kind of statutory thing to it. It's really a difference in how it's perceived. When you take money out right before a closing, the IRS looks at you and says, nah, you were going to do a 1031, so you wanted to pull the profit out tax-free. When you do it after a 1031, there's no longer a 1031 you're, with profits you're trying to avoid. You're now accessing equity by placing a debt instrument on it. And you're paying interest. So there's no longer any of that, that old kind of requirements. Good to know. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. We got the fun section left to go over in a couple minutes, but let's see how good Avery Carl is. <laughs> what kind of property qualifies for a 1031? Uh, an investment property. Voila! <laughs> What's our identification period? 45 days. You're actually stressing this, aren't you? I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> I love it. The total exchange period? 180 days. Who is Dave Foster? He's a qualified intermediary. He's really speedy like that, too. <laughs> and remember, we this one, we, we said the taxpayer requirements or 
the, I'll give you this one. Title um, requirements. Right, have to be the same from the sale <laughs> to the purchase. And if you're going to reinvest, how much do you have to purchase? 95% equal or more. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Man, you're awesome. So meet all six of those requirements. And as you can imagine, it's harder than you think just to remember them. Meet all six of them. You've done a successful 1031 exchange. But how can we use these things? Consolidation exchanges will be very important to your clients, especially those looking into the higher price markets of, say, the Smokies and that kind of thing. I can take several smaller properties, like four $100,000 properties, sell each one of them, and purchase as part of my 1031 exchanges one larger rental cabin. The key to that is going to be that I simply need to cluster those sales so that their timelines overlap enough. And obviously the first sale is going to be the most important. All of the closings of the next properties have to fall within the 180 day period of that first sale. But consolidation can be huge because that lets you take advantage of scales of economy to buy more doors in one building, to go into a larger building that produces more income, to go from more active to passive management. See how all those kind of things can be accomplished by consolidating your portfolio. And you'll do all this using 1031 exchanges so you will not pay any tax on the profits. Now, the exact opposite of that is a diversification exchange. You bought a piece of property, and like our example of the 300,000 one, it's now appreciated so far, and you want to sell it, but you're really not getting the rental income per square foot on that larger property. You would prefer to go buy two smaller, cheaper properties because the dollars per square foot of rent are better. So you sell the one property, use your 1031 exchange to go buy multiple small properties. Again, without paying a penny in tax. And these two things kind of work together like yin and yang throughout your career. There are times when you want to be diversifying, buying everything you can see. And then there's times and stages of your life when you want to start selling them to consolidate down to the larger properties, especially as you start to reach retirement and that kind of thing. How we can use these things in retirement needs is so awesome. We kind of hinted at it. What if that person in New Jersey knew that they wanted to retire in the Florida Panhandle? So they start before they're ready to move, buying up rental properties in the Panhandle, wherever their choice is, ahead of their retirement and they're doing 1031 exchanges. So without paying any tax, they're moving their investment portfolio down where they're gonna be. As they walk out of the door of New Jersey, they do two things. They throw the snow shovel in the trash and they put a check into their pockets of tax-free dollars from the sale of their primary residence. 
Remember Section 121, Avery? This is where it gets real <laughs> because they can sell that property and that money is tax free. That's a great start on their retirement. But now they don't have a house, do they? They have a whole bunch of rentals in the panhandle of Florida. One of them is probably a really kicking butt nice vacation rental. And they look at that thing and they say, you know what? The income's been nice, but no. I'm going to change my intent and convert that property into my primary residence. Whoa. Conversion of a property does not trigger a tax event. So all of that tax that was deferred into that stays deferred as long as you live in it. So they can sell their property to New Jersey, take the money tax-free, move into their vacation property, not trigger any tax, and live there as long as they want without paying a penny in tax. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen, for sure. Yeah. Now, there's you want to write this down, by the way. This kind of fits into what we call the four Ds of 1031 investing. And the four D's are defer, 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 and die. <laughs> because if you do that, you will never pay the tax and the tax will disappear. As long as you sell a property and do a 1031 exchange, you won't pay the tax. As long as any time you hold that property and if you ever sell it, do another 1031 exchange, you will never pay the tax. Anytime you move into that property, as long as you own it, you will never pay the tax. And if you die owning the property, your heirs get it at what is called a step up in basis. So that means that the tax disappears for your heirs and they get the property tax-free. Now think about what a legacy that will be for your children to be able to develop your careers and have hundreds of thousands of dollars of deferred taxes. But because you died, they get the money tax-free. That's an awesome gift, except for the fact of what you have to do to get it. <laughs> which is why Avery, I give you this counsel now, even though yours are young, don't tell them about it too soon. <laughs> I've got one son who's already going into medical technical field because he wants to figure out how to shut off life-saving machines just for <laughs> dear old dad. So retirement needs, you guys get out and do that. That's an awesome thing to do. Put this whole thing together with estate planning. Let's use the example of a farm, but it works with anything. I've got the family farm, and this family sold that. Now, what they actually sold was two different pieces of property. They sold their primary residence. That money is tax-free. They sold the agricultural land. That was investment. They did a tax-deferred exchange, and they bought properties that were near each one of their three children. Did they pay any tax so far? No. They told their kids, here's the deal. You'll get, we'll let you inherit this when we die, but we need the retirement income now. So if you'll agree to manage it, we'll pay you a manager's fee. 
and you get the property when we die. Well, the kids obviously love that idea. So they went and bought the three properties. What's the net result of this? Well, first of all, they sold their primary residence, didn't pay any tax, bought an RV and started cruising the world. Secondly, they did a tax deferred exchange, deferred all of the tax on that agricultural land from a long time ago. They've got more income coming in now than they did while they were running the farm. They have motivated managers because the kids want to take good care of the properties while their parents are alive. And they have put together their estate plan that is going to leave those properties to their children tax-free. All using the 1031 exchange throughout their life. But you know what the biggest benefit of all was? Your kids are way too young to appreciate this. But grandma figured this one out. Every trip to go see her grandkids is now a tax write-off as a business expense to go do some things on their investment properties. How awesome is that? That's pretty awesome. So those are the different kinds of ways that you could use the 1031 exchange creatively to keep tax deferred, to position yourself where you want, in what kinds of property you want, and how you want it to be to maximize your income and your living pleasure as well, and do it all without paying any tax. So you already know all this stuff, don't you? (laughs) Here's those six rules. And hopefully the best thing you can remember is my phone number because the rest of that stuff is hard to remember. But that's what your QI is going to be there for. Right. And for those of you who are listening, uh, you can find Dave at www.the1031investor.com. And Dave, thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute just wisdom bomb on the listeners. So thank you so much. That's awesome. It's been great to be here with you. Awesome. We will catch you next time.